0: The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another live Clubland Q&A. My name is Andrew Lawton. In for Mark, I am not the in-house Jewish mother. I am neither Jewish nor a mother, although in this day and age you can self-identify certainly as one of those two things without any issue. Uh, You can't self-identify as Jewish as easily. You have to go through a a whole rigmarole there. But uh, nevertheless, I am not Laura Rosen-Cohen. She held down the fort last Last week, I am holding down the fort this week, and by holding down the fort, I mean I have just kicked down the studio door in Mark's absence, and I've decided to offer up just uh, about an hour, which is all I can muster on a nice Friday afternoon in the summer, some substitute uh, guest host level excellence in question answering. But in keeping with tradition, it is uh, just after 3 o'clock Eastern time where I am, but that also means that we have to uh, offer a little bit of honorary mentions to some of our other locales around the world. It is uh, four o'clock Friday afternoon in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Friday evening, 10 p.m. in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It is uh, Saturday just after midnight in Islamabad. And in Auckland, it is a early Saturday morning at 7.02 a.m. And I'm not going really in in chronological order here. I decided to do some alphabetical ordering for the time zones just to mix things up a little bit. Uh, In Kirtamati, it is Saturday at 9.02 a.m. So that was both alphabetical and chronological. Sometimes you uh, get to do that. Uh, But in our old favoured land of... Of Kiev. I didn't have the, I, I didn't inhale enough to do like the proper Kiev as Mark does. It is Friday night, uh, just after 10 PM. And I always like to give a, an honorable mention to those on the West coast. So in Los Angeles, it is Friday afternoon, barely afternoon. In fact, two minutes afternoon, uh, 12 hours ahead of in, uh, Sri Jayawardenapura, Kota, where it is Saturday night, just after 1230 in the evening. I know you all love the half-hour time zones, being the uh, crazy folks that you are. It is my great privilege to be here from His Majesty's deranged dominion of Canada. We always tend to bring out the Canadian content in the questions, though I assure you that uh, Canadian content is not a requirement of the Clubland Q and A's, and I to this day do not know. If the Americans tolerate the Canadian content, enjoy the Canadian content, or just tune out because they're not even quite sure what this whole Canada thing is. And to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what the Canada thing is myself at this point. I become less confident of understanding that with each passing day. Uh, Nevertheless, this is a bit of crossover, Canadian and American content. Mary B. writes, Headline. Canada has a, quote, game plan if the U.S. takes a far-right authoritarian shift. Is this a joke? What say you? Well, it's not a joke, and I'm actually—I referenced that headline in the uh, text that preambled today's show because I suspected someone might bring it up. Uh, This is a story that is quite fascinating. Uh, Melanie Jolie, who's Canada's foreign affairs minister, one of the uh, Quebec variety of Canadians, has uh, said—she was doing an interview, and she was asked by some Quebec radio host in French, you know, what Canada would do if the U.S. takes a far-right authoritarian shift— after the upcoming election. Now, what the interviewer basically was saying is what's Canada going to do if Trump wins the American election? Because, you know, you think Trump lives rent-free in the heads of the mainstream media in the U.S. It is even more so in the media in Canada. So the foreign minister doing an interview about Canadian affairs is being asked, what's Canada going to do if the U.S. goes all scary, far-right authoritarian? Uh, And the thing that is interesting about this is that instead of saying... You know the way you get out of that question, which is basically, well, you look. We worked with Trump before. We would work with Trump again. We don't really have a reason to answer that question. Governments in other countries change all the time. Uh, she decides to commit to a so-called game plan. She says, oh, we we can't say too much, but we have a game plan if that happens. Now, I'm not aware if she was just making it up because that seems to be what members of Trudeau's cabinet do when they get asked a question. They just uh, make it up because they don't actually know their own files generally. So uh, maybe there is a game plan or maybe she was just making it up. But in the moment... Minister Jolie thought that she needed to concede that Canada had a game plan to deal with the evil, scary orange man winning a a democratic election in the United States next year. Now, this to me is somewhat interesting because she has not offered up any evidence of what is in the game plan. So what is the game plan? Is the game plan saying that we are going to close our borders? Do we need to build a wall? Is Justin Trudeau going to roll out the red carpet at Roxham Road, which is this uh, little port of entry, an illegal port of entry that all the migrants just walk into Canada in across every day and night? Maybe we're just going to put up a welcome sign there and offer entertainment and luggage porters. And welcome people. Oh, we do already offer luggage porters. Yeah, the RCMP will help people with their bags as they cross illegally into Canada. But maybe we'll just invite more Americans who want to claim asylum in Canada because they fear the evil, scary orange man. But... The whole point of this is that Canada is basically preparing for the rise of Trump in the United States as though it was some junta taking place in a third world where, oh, well, yes, we're monitoring and we we have a plan in place and we're, we're prepared to respond. This is a country that hasn't even managed to successfully evacuate a part of the country which is on fire right now. Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. They can't manage to evacuate this community of its 20,000 residents, but they're convinced that they have a game plan in place for Canada to deal with Trump and the re-election of Donald Trump. So is it idle virtue signaling? I suspect it is in some way, but it also is not a particularly irrational question for people to ask, because Canada took a, a very antagonistic view in the first iteration of the Trump presidency. And, and we saw this when Chrystia Freeland, who is the, uh, was the former foreign minister of Canada, when again, you know, the chief diplomat of the country, you'd think would be engaging to some extent in diplomacy, but she would show up at uh, panel discussions like one that was called taking on the tyrant. And she was literally sitting on a panel discussion about how evil the tyrant Donald Trump was uh, that was the tyrant in that university panel discussion. And you know, she was I saw this clip yesterday, Christian Freeland. She was speaking at I think it was Northeastern University. She had been brought along to give the convocation speech, which imagine spending like in the United States, I don't know how many tens of thousands of dollars to get your degree. And then at the end of it, Christian Freeland is the one you have to listen to. And it was great though, because as the camera panned the audience, They were all like looking up at the jumbotron, just waving to themselves because that was more interesting than looking at the woman that was delivering the convocation address. But in the remarks, it took me like five tries to stay awake. She started going on about how uh, the capitalist democracy might not be working. And she didn't offer a solution to this, but uh, she was saying that, oh, capitalist democracy is not working and we need to listen to the silent voice of the glaciers. Like this is some crazy, crazy stuff. So this is the woman that we had representing Canada when we were renegotiating NAFTA, which is why Canada got such a raw deal on that negotiation. But uh, basically, the Canadian establishment has not really distinguished itself all that much from the liberal media establishment in the US, and that it is prepared to take an antagonistic and very political and very partisan view of the US election instead of doing what uh, Justin Trudeau's predecessor, Stephen Harper, did, for example, which is say, okay, I will work with George W. Bush when he's there, and then I'll work with Barack Obama when he's there. It was that simple, and you'd think would be somewhat intuitive. So I don't know what is going to happen, and I so far haven't seen the great backtrack on this. Elisa Angel writes, is the Canadian government's secret game plan to deal with a Trump win another other distraction from the true internal Canadian humanitarian crisis? Aren't the euthanizing made agents more dangerous to an average Canadian than Donald Trump is? And regarding external threats, aren't external threats like the WEF influence on Canadian politicians more of a threat than any possible Trump-sponsored USA-Canada trade policy? Well, I, I think you are onto something there, Elisa. And I would also point out, just while we're on the subject here, that there's not really any depiction in Melanie Jolie's comments of what this far-right authoritarian turn is. I mean, far-right is meaningless. It's basically the new racist, where people say it and don't define it, and they overuse it, so it really lacks any heft because it, it no longer has any universally understood meaning. But let's just talk about authoritarianism. You know, if the U.S. went authoritarian, they could engage in the mass mass euthanization of their citizens, even people that have no real illness driving it. If the U.S. went authoritarian, they could freeze the bank accounts of political dissidents, people who dare protest the government. If the U.S. went authoritarian, they could implement a massive vaccine-related segregation to uh, keep people from traveling, to restrict mobility, to lock people up in quarantine hotels. All of these things the U.S. could do if it wanted to embrace authoritarianism. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. Those were all things that Justin Trudeau's government did. Yeah, in the last two years, Justin Trudeau's government has frozen the bank accounts of political dissidents. Justin Trudeau's government has made it where you can't get on a plane if you are unvaccinated. He has laid off civil servants because they do not want to disclose medical decisions that they have made. He has done all of this. And the Canadian government has the audacity to lambaste the U.S. for ooh the supposed rise of authoritarianism. The same Canadian government, which as I spoke about when I was guest hosting this very program a couple of weeks ago, the same Canadian government, which is bringing in the most sweeping internet regulations you could come up with, which a lot of dictators would think, ah, you know what, maybe I I can't necessarily pull that off. This is the very same government that is trying to regulate what you say and do on the internet. And again, they have the gall to criticize this supposed authoritarianism that they think is going to come if Donald Trump gets a second term, which I'm not convinced is going to happen anyway. But rest assured, if it does, Canada has a game plan in place to deal with it. But as Elisa writes here, I mean, about the maid agents. Uh, this has been one of the greatest shames that I've ever seen in Canada, and it's one that is not just about a, a left-right thing. You know, free speech is a, a big shame in Canada right now, but it's only one side politically that tends to talk about that issue. It's, it's basically the right now. Whereas with assisted suicide, it is voices from the left, from the right, from the disability community, from advocacy groups that are typically very left-wing that work in the mental health space, that are all concerned that the federal government is basically just coming in and justifying the mass euthanization of people who have no business getting state-mandated deaths, even under the original conceptualization of what assisted suicide was supposed to be. And absolutely, the number of stories that we've seen in Canada of people who have been told when they call up the Veterans Affairs hotline because they need a chairlift to get upstairs, oh, have you considered uh, assisted suicide instead? Or people who have had significant difficulties in getting housing that are being told, oh yeah, you know, we we can't help you by getting you an apartment that is subsidized, but uh, can we interest you in killing yourself? Is that going to be the solution to your problem here? And people have gone through with this. People who didn't want to end their lives have gone through with this because the Canadian government has been promoting this as a viable alternative to life. And in fact, in the government's eyes, it is a preferable alternative to life. Thank you very much for that question, Elisa. John Fasci writes, Happy Friday, Andrew, Mark, Laura, Clublanders et al. Uh, The Microsoft newsfeed had a headline by Alec Donaldson that read that the Constitution forbids Trump from running ever again. Aside from the innocent until proven guilty clause, where do we stand in the next election as opposition to our CCP colonial governors of the Democratic and Republican parties? Democrat and Republican parties, rather. Very little Democratic about them. When will the RNC be questioned on their intentions to win? Trump will be eliminated for having intentions to win election, even if he hasn't been already. DeSantis is under suspicion for being capable of winning and skillfully passing legislation to benefit Americans, so he was bullied over that by Megyn Kelly. What do you expect the GOP, who do you expect the GOP will nominate to lose gracefully? Will Michelle Obama run, or will she and Barack continue to muck things up from behind the curtain? Well, generally speaking, I don't think you need anyone on the Democrat side, mucking things up from behind the curtain because Republicans managed to blow their uh, shot on their own without any intervention. The, look, I mean, the Trump-DeSantis fight has been a bit of a, an unpleasant one because I've always been a big fan of Desantis, and I, I've never been a never Trumper. I've had some disagreements with Trump that aren't based on the tone or the civility or the tweets. No, they they've just been on where he is on policy. And I, I think in general, if you look at Trump's record on COVID, he was exactly the problem for the early days. He advocated lockdowns. He advocated. Uh, a lot of the policies that were carried on by Joe Biden and has really not accounted for for why that was and he hasn't blamed the you know the deep state or fauci because he was the guy in charge uh, but all that aside what i find interesting here is that there are people running who I kind of forget are running. Like, I saw a headline this morning, or maybe it was yesterday, I think it was this morning, in which Chris Christie was, like, saying that he is wants Trump to agree to debate him. And I was like... Because I remember when Chris Christie was a, a big deal, and I don't mean that in an insulting way. I mean, big deal metaphorically. And I... I was like shocked. I'm like, wait, Chris Christie's running for president. Like, did I, did I miss that? I must've missed that announcement because, you know, basically if you look at it, apparently everyone's running for president now, even these people that were once big deals that but have since become has-beens and, uh, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy is, is campaigning and he's saying a lot of the right things, but, you know, ultimately Trump has been like in 2016 at the top of the pack, ahead of the pack since the very entry into the field. And all of that is to say that if he is the guy, I am not convinced he's going to win the election. And it's interesting that you aren't seeing the assault on Trump in the media that you used to see. And and it's not to say they're they're being friendly to him or kind to him. I, I think right now the assaults on Trump are coming from the Justice Department, not from the media, because the, the media didn't have the benefit of indictments last time. So they had to build the case against Trump. They had to be the ones to indict him in the press. Whereas now they could just sit back. But I, I don't know if you've noticed this. And again, I, I don't have any Data to back this up. It's purely uh, anecdotal on my part, but it seems the media is giving a lot less air and attention to the Trump justice uh, fights now. And and again, even earlier on, they were a lot more gleeful and giddy when Trump was being indicted. He's what is how many is he up to now? Uh, I've lost count. I think like ninety one or forty one or something. But the when the media was first when this was first happening. They were a lot, they were giving it a lot more airtime. They had, you know, like the helicopter following his limo to the courtroom in New York and all of that. Whereas now they've realized that the more attention they give on that, the more it helps him. And, And I think the media is starting to realize, if you pay closer attention, that they contributed to the Trump win in 2016 and that they built Trump, and that they were the ones that gave him this huge platform and huge opportunity in a way that no other candidate could ever have gotten from them. And I, I think they're starting to realize that. Now, whether it'll keep up or not, I don't know, because he was like the greatest gift to cable news ratings that ever could have existed. And as a result, cable news was one of the greatest gifts to Donald Trump, more than, more than even Twitter, where he has not returned. But That's going to be the thing here, because I think the media is noticing that, okay maybe we can't make him the guy anymore because they are scared of him and and they're all just terrified of what's going to happen if they have to deal with four years of Donald Trump, not for their jobs, but like Republicans and conservatives fear for their livelihoods and the quality of the country and all of these things when Democrats are in. Democrats fear for their lives. Like, Democrats are not able to deal with being in opposition. They just are fundamentally unable to compute like how they can live and how they can continue to exist, which is why, I mean, you never have the Republicans going saying, oh, you know, I'm moving to so-and-so if, uh, you know, Joe Biden wins or whatever. Whereas the Democrat, like speaking of seeking asylum in Canada, I mean, like the, the we, we are going to have to build a wall in Canada if Trump wins because, you know, otherwise we're going to have like Cher and Rosie O'Donnell and Whoopi Goldberg just like stampeding towards the border, trying to get in for real this time. They all threatened to do it last time. Uh, This time, I think they may end up doing it for real. Yeah, 91 charges. I just saw a message from uh, Kirk here. 91 charges and counts in four jurisdictions. It's time for conservatives, Republicans, and all critical thinking people to jettison Donald Trump. Let him stand trial and, if convicted, serve time in jail. Mandatory minimum five years under Georgia RICO. The GOP has credible alternatives running for president who can win a general election and, more importantly, run a competent and lawful administration. If she or he loses said person, won't try to overturn the election and foment an insurrection. Is this too much to ask for? Well... Listen, I I disagree with a lot of that, Kirk. I I don't uh, believe that Trump fomented an insurrection. I I don't believe that he did that. And I also don't believe he ran a lawless administration. I, I believe that a lot of the charges against him are bogus. But at the same time, I also don't believe Donald Trump should be the standard bearer of American conservatism or of what the American right should strive towards. And this is a challenge because the idea of a of someone who's neither a never-Trumper nor a Trump lover is a, a tough place to be in, because oftentimes your you know comments get dismissed by both. And I, I was a big fan of much that Trump did. The problem that I have with the Republicans right now is that the people that like Trump will not be satisfied with any alternative, is that there's no one else even remotely like him. Now, You may think that this isn't entirely reasonable, that, you know, why should you look for an alternative when you are only going to uh, be supporting that one guy? But the problem that I have is that there tends to be this very fickle response to people around Trump, where if Trump likes someone, people who like Trump like them, and the second Trump turns on them, they've got no time for them. And that was, I, I think, one of the biggest shortcomings of the Trump administration, is that the number of people that he turned on should reflect to people that perhaps he wasn't the best judge of character. You know, he, he let people get into his orbit that had no business being there, you know, whether it was that, you know, Omarosa woman from Reality TV who was like his, you know, right-hand woman for five minutes until she became the enemy and all of the different chiefs of staff who were so great until they weren't. Like, remember when Rex Tillerson was the great guy and he was the guy that we needed to back and then he became persona non grata and John Bolton and, and all of that. And, and when you see that type of stuff happening it becomes very difficult to keep up with who you're supposed to like and who you're not. Like, look, Ron DeSantis, I remember, was being treated as a COVID hero. Now, I I think it might have been Elisa Angel a couple of weeks back who lives in Florida, and I apologize apologize if I'm I'm mixing up who that was, that said, well, you know, he wasn't as great as as people like to to think. And that's fine. That's legitimate. I, I think people should have that discussion. But most people on the right that I spoke to Absolutely loved Ron DeSantis. They they thought he was great. They thought he was like the model governor, and they would have said, Yeah, Ron DeSantis for president in 2028. But then when Trump gets in and says I'm running again in 2024, and Ron DeSantis says I'm running in 2024, all those same people say, Okay, now he's he's and then you've heard all the names, you know, Ron DeSanctimonious, he's this, he's this, and, and it gets very tiresome. And I, I do think that there has to be a pro there has to be a reckoning here with whether the cult of personality around Donald Trump is just a little bit too strong and and whether there needs to be some thinking about succession planning. Because like it or not, even if he wins, even if he wins, that is four years. That is four years. There has to be a what comes next. And right now, I don't see any, any viable alternatives that's going to capture the things that Trump did right, perhaps without the things he did not so well. And, and there doesn't seem to be any long-term planning on that part. And, and that, I think, is a, a real shortcoming here. Uh, Chris Davies writes, Andrew, welcome back to the hot seat. How much correlation do you attribute to the decline of the developed world over the past 60 years, resulting from the iterative abandonment of Judeo-Christian values on which it was founded? Is there still time to reverse the decline Or shall we just maintain open borders and ignore the concept of nation-states as an irrelevance? Keep well, and best wishes to Mark and all at Stein Online. Well, I know Mark appreciates greatly those best wishes, Chris. I I absolutely think that the abandonment of Judeo-Christian values has been a massive problem, but I I would go even more fundamentally there and say the abandonment of values themselves, the abandonment of truth, the abandonment of universal truth has been the most critical aspect of the downfall of Western civilization. Because I've said in the past that if you can't agree on the basics, if you can't agree on the fundamentals, on ABC and 1, 2, 3 and all of that, I'm not doing the Jackson 5, I'm just saying on on the fundamentals of, of a society, you can't agree on the big things. And this is why the gender wars right now are so important. If we can't as a society universally agree on what a man is and what a woman is, on male and female, the two fundamental categorical units of biology, how can we ever agree on anything else? And now when you hear talk that math is racist, it's really driving home this point that we really do not have an ability to agree on on fundamentals. And Judeo-Christian values are based on these long-standing beliefs, whether you want to call it natural law or whether you want to call it God's law, but they're based on these ideas which we live in an era unwilling to accept and unwilling to endorse. And I remember on the Mark Stein cruise that came up, we had uh, Ava Vlardingerbrook, who is very devout in her Catholic faith, Michelle Bachman, very devout in her her Christian faith, not, not Catholic, that spoke at great length about religion and about God. And and I, as a Christian, agree wholeheartedly with what they said about how we need to, as a society, turn back to God. But I, I know there was a bit of pushback from people that I spoke to at the dinners or in the crow's nest, people that aren't religious, that say, well, hold on, I'm I'm with you guys politically, but I can't get on board with this whole God being the answer thing because I I'm not religious. And I think that's a a perfectly legitimate response because if someone is giving you a religious argument and you're not religious, well, the argument isn't really going to be all that convincing to you. So you're left with two options. You can either A, proselytize and try to convert people on the religion so you can then make the religious arguments to them, or you can make non-religious arguments that achieve the same ends. And I I think your question, Chris, is a very useful one here because Judeo-Christian values are always seen in a a separate context from Judaism and Christianity as religions. And and I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a sensible atheist that won't say Judeo-Christian values are a useful set of values around which to build a society. I mean, maybe you need to give them another name to get the really dogmatic atheists off your back. But generally speaking, people will say, well, yeah, a lot lot of the values that people call so-called human rights are really just derivatives of Judeo-Christian values. And I I think that society itself has very much moved away from these things because we've moved away from the idea that there can be a a universal truth, that there can be a a universal morality. And, And moral relativism is fascinating to see in action because moral relativism this is the you know belief that morality is relative to your upbringing to your religion to your culture it's used to justify things that the people doing the justification really don't believe wholeheartedly. I mean, when you hear moral relativists who would talk about women's rights and gay rights and all of this, and you hear them defend female genital mutilation, for example, say, oh, well, you know, it's you know, culture and whatever, or they'll never defend it, but they'll say, well, it's, you know, we need to just tell them that's not how we do things. But, but then you get the, the anti-colonialist or the post colonialists or whatever they call themselves now that will say, oh, well, hang on. What, what, what is this the way we do things? We can't tell people there's a way we do things because then we're uh, pretending that we do things better than they do. Well, damn right we do. Damn right we do. There's a reason that there is a massive, massive wave of migration from the global south to the global north. And that's because we do things better here. We do things better economically. We do things better culturally. And we do things better as a civilization, which is why people are fleeing the rest of the world to come here. The problem is when they try to import the very things that people are fleeing into this civilization and this culture. And, you know, I live in London, Ontario, which is a a couple of hours from Detroit, Michigan, which is, uh, within it, there is uh, Dearborn, which is a very heavily Muslim enclave. And it's an enclave in which uh, female genital mutilation has historically been practiced. If you, you know, know the right doctor, you can apparently go there and get your young daughters body mutilated in, in horrific ways in the United States in the, the land of liberty the land of the free. So again it's like Mark says don't waive your constitution because you can just go to the local clitoridectomist in Dearborn and you know your you know ability to live free from such intrusion in your life is not there because we've decided that political correctness and cultural relativism and moral relativism are more valuable As a society, and I guess the 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 latter part of that question is: there still time to reverse the decline, or shall we just maintain open borders? The borders are not the problem as much as the attitudes are the problem, because the borders are the consequence of this attitude that there is a an expectation in the West that we are culturally neutral, that that Western culture, Western civilization, that this doesn't actually exist or isn't worth protecting. And it's that attitude that even if you were to build the biggest wall on the border, it's that attitude itself that will be the downfall of civilization in the West because you have a basically inherent in that, this idea that there is nothing worth protecting or there is nothing worth asserting. As being a truth, so uh, it's a little bit of a a little bit of a pessimistic answer, I fear, but an honest one nonetheless. Uh, what do we have here? A question from James O. Have you seen the music video Rich Men North of Richmond, which has gone viral in recent days? I, I think he has really tapped in to the silent majority. I should have actually pulled the audio for this song to play us out instead of our, our usual outro music. But uh, this is a, a song I saw and it's written by a guy who you know very much looks like the, the sort of rural mountain man that you'd imagine is behind this song. He's a a singer named Oliver Anthony. And in the famous video, he's wearing a t-shirt, holding his guitar, singing into a microphone. And he's got this, you know, large uh, foliage behind him. He's singing in the woods, it looks like. And it was a a song that just overnight blew up. And this guy that no one has ever heard of that has never really recorded anything professionally that I've understood has uh, become a household name. And it's a song that is really about middle America. It's about flyover country. It's about the uh, deplorables, to use Hillary Clinton's word. It's about the bitter clingers, to use Barack Obama's term. It's about these people who are completely and utterly forgotten by the coastal elites. And he sings this very raw song that has been held up as a working man's anthem. You know, one of the lyrics, I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for BS pay. And, you know, your dollar ain't bleep and it's taxed to no end. I wish politicians would look out for minors. And... There, Although the great line on that is he said, and not just miners, M-I-N-O-R-S, on an island somewhere, which is very clever. And then the left has gotten all up in arms because, oh, he's, uh, you know, winking to conspiracy theorists or something like that, as though Epstein's Island was not a legitimate conspiracy and, and not a theory. But nevertheless, it was a very, very beautiful and raw song and and speaks to very real challenges. And And, you know, it, it was kind of, disappointing to see the way that the left found so many opportunities and created opportunities to just dismiss this guy out of hand and and, you know even I just pulled up an article uh, right after I I read the the question there and there's uh, one piece here that is talking about it is not all that newfangled either as a piece of music or as a culture war grenade don't be fooled by the title Uh, they're basically taking aim at this and the people that like it and trying to find ways to malign and denigrate something that has been very meaningful for people. And I know a lot of Americans that live in places like, you know, West Virginia or Ohio, Michigan, that were brought to tears by this song because they've seen exactly what he's describing there. And I think it's the same sort of energy as uh, J.D. Vance's book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy, which then became a movie. And again, the, the left loved the Hillbilly Elegy story until J.D. Vance uh, came out and said, well, yes, he's actually a conservative Republican. And then all of a sudden, Hillbilly Elegy became this you know piece of class warfare against uh, the ruling class, which the ruling class, of course, is never too fond of. But I, I did see this, and it, it was quite... Heartwarming, and, and I hope this guy has a great success. I understand he's teamed up with uh, John Rich now uh, of Big and Rich and, and I hope we'll do fantastic things there. So thanks for asking about that, James. Uh, we have a question from Eric Dale, who writes, Andrew and fellow club members. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the surge in anti-Western sentiment on the world stage. The other day at the Iowa State Fair, RFK Jr. said that the BRICS nation, who want to replace the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency, are now up to 40 nations. The recent coup in Niger wouldn't normally matter to me, but for the fact that apparently Niger has some of the largest uranium deposits in gold in the world, and France, for example, gets about one-third of its power from nuclear, nuclear and is dependent on Niger uranium to keep that going. Of course, we in the U.S. have an all-important uh, drone base there for some reason, too, and the angel of international death, Victoria Nuland, made an in-person visit to their new government. Does the rest of the world... See the West as hyenas see a wounded lion. Well, I think that's quite a vivid way of putting it, and I think it's true to some extent. And and I, I wonder though if it's a little bit more transactional than that, because the the world still looks to the U.S. somehow, and for some reason. As a bit of a moral leader, not a moral leader, but a financial leader, uh, not a mor- the opposite of a moral leader. They, they look to the US as basically being the sugar daddy to everything else they want to do. And you, you see this on the climate stuff, where like the U.S. is, you know, the, one of the most, well, the most industrialized nation in the world. Uh, the U.S. is not as bad as China when it comes to emitting, but it's a pretty big emitter because it's a bit, pretty big producer. And the consequence of producing things that are used around the world is that you have to use resources to do it. So so the West basically capitulates on all of these climate initiatives out of guilt. And they do it out of guilt. And the world doesn't really care if the U.S. changes anything. The world just wants the U.S. to funnel all the money to all of these countries, which is why you get like the heads of Tuvalu and the Maldives that are up there demanding climate reparations. And the U.S. will just keep writing the big old checks and they'll they'll shut up. Like I, I was my wife absolutely adores the Maldives and has uh, been wanting to go to the Maldives for quite some time. And we just it takes like, you know, seven days to get there for us. So we haven't made it happen yet. But it was funny because I was looking up a little while ago, Maldives. Maldives. Maldives vacations and I got all these websites and you can look these up for yourself about all the new resorts opening up in the Maldives this year and I found like the 2023 list of you know the 10 new beachfront resorts in the Maldives that are opening and then the list of the ones that are opening in 2024 and then I you know looked back to last year and saw the beachfront resorts that are operating uh, that opened in 2022 And you wonder how this squares with a country that's talking about being on the verge of drowning and being underwater any given day. Like, why are they investing so much money in uh, Ocean View resorts? And the reason is because they know it's all nonsense. They know that they are uh, dealing with sea levels that are not rising, but uh, they're going to continue to fearmonger. The West is going to continue to be the piggy bank. So this is, I think, what's going to happen. So when it comes to Niger, like the US isn't going to want to give up the drone base, and that's going to be true whether you have a Democrat or a Republican in the White House. But they'll find some way to just uh, make up for it by, you know, paying. We'll transfer this wealth to this person. And and it just becomes a global ATM. And that was the interesting thing to bring it back to the World Economic Forum, for example, which I, I know I've talked about on previous shows. They all talk about the U.S., in a very weird way because they they all hate the U.S. and they talk about just not liking that American bravado and brashness, but they also demand the U.S. is at the center of absolutely everything they do. I, again, you know, all the, and the I, I spoke to this climate change diplomat guy once that was, you know, representing the EU in some climate negotiation. And it was like he spoke about the US in, in just this vicious, vicious way. And he was saying, oh, yeah, they they bully everyone and they always get their way and they don't want to do this and they don't want to do that. And then, and I said, well, why, why do you bother with them if everyone in the world thinks this and everyone in the world doesn't care about them? He said, like, oh, well, we need them at the table. Well, and that's the whole point. And and you know, John Kerry will uh, go around the world. I, I shared this clip on my own show recently. I'd forgotten about it, but I, I ran into him in the in Davos in January at the the World Economic Forum, and I I had attended this panel he did. First off. And I just attended the panel so I'd know like which back door he was going to go out so I could sneak around to that and and ambush him with a microphone, which I did. But uh, he was on stage and he was asked by some CNBC reporter who was interviewing him, you know, what's the hardest part about being climate envoy? And his answer was, well, making all my flights on time. (laughs) Like, and and everyone laughs and chuckles. Oh, ha ha ha. He's so busy flying around the world. and, And like, it's not even a joke. Well, it is a joke to these people, but it's not even one that they have to hide. It's not even one they care about the optics of. Uh, so, you know, the U.S. just gets to be the the empresario of globalism without even having to adopt the things that they are trying to foist on the rest of the world. Uh, J.B. McEll writes... Many thanks to Laura and Andrew for helping out while Mark recovers. Good to see some coverage of Richard Bilkstow's situation. This is the Toronto school board principal who tragically ended his life uh, not long after he was uh, really dragged through the mud after being accused of white supremacy in some diversity education or diversity, equity, and inclusion workshop that he was forced to go through. He says, The only place I've seen reporting about Kevin Spacey's recent trial was from the Phelim McAleer interview on your show. Have you seen coverage anywhere else at all? Most stories like invasions of Ukraine managed to sneak through to my intention. Kevin's story should be pretty big as it wrecked his career. Well, thank you for, for watching that or listening to that, whichever it was. So Phelan McAleer, who fans of of The Mark Stein Show uh, should know by now, and he's a fantastic filmmaker and journalist and author alongside his wife, Anne McElhenney. And together, they produced a series that covered the Kevin Spacey trial in the UK, which wrapped up just a few weeks ago and ultimately ended in Kevin Spacey being exonerated on all counts. And this was the third legal proceeding in which Kevin Spacey has beat the rap on his on his, uh ...on his charges, which were, were very serious. I mean, very, very serious charges of, of sexual assault in this particular case. And he beat the rap on all of them. And and I remain somewhat skeptic about Kevin Spacey... ...in, in the sense that when, when the Me Too allegations came... Uh, there were some of his that that came up that sounded entirely plausible and even if the illegal actions the criminal actions were not were there was there suspicion that he could have been engaged in behavior that was kind of that lawful but awful maybe he didn't break a law but but certainly acted in, in a predatory way now Phelan's view on this is that this was not a case of me too mission creep this was not a case of a guy that was just you know kind of that something was forced into the criminal context that should shouldn't have been, but was still bad. His view after listening to all the evidence and, and going through the evidence and watching the trials multiple, was that this is a guy who actually, was wrongly accused and had his life dragged through the mud, his career ruined, his having financial troubles despite a few years ago being on top of his game. And that was the case. So I went into my interview with Phelan with an open mind. and I listened to the entirety of the podcast. I think it's called Kevin Spacey Trial Unfiltered. And and I must say it was persuasive because uh, Kevin Spacey, one of the most high profile casualties of the Me Too movement, he showed through his case how a lot of people just saw opportunities when Me Too happened. They saw ways that they could glom on and pile on to people. And do so in a way that was to attract attention or to attract, uh, in some cases, money. And there was one guy, one of Kevin Spacey's accusers, who in the trial, uh, it was learned, had emailed Kevin Spacey's website, so like, I don't know, like info at kevinspacey.com or whatever, and said, I'll withdraw my accusation in exchange for a settlement. And this is a guy who made a very serious criminal accusation that went to trial and ultimately blew up because Kevin Spacey was found... to be not guilty, and a lot of the evidence exonerated him. So, I've heard from, because again, Kevin Spacey is like not this Hollywood conservative. I mean, he's a, he's a big old lefty. And I, I've had a lot of people on the right uh, after that interview I, I did with Phelan that came out and said, oh, you know, how can you support this guy and blah, blah, blah. I said, it's not about supporting him. It's just about realizing that he, like several others, was wronged. And and the Me Too era was a tough one because I think some people got their comeuppance, but it, it very quickly became clear that we were just throwing anything and everything under this banner of sexual assault and sexual harassment and sexual misconduct, where people whose crime was being a little bit awkward on a date were being viewed in the same way that like Harvey Weinstein was for raping women so and even in that case, I know Harvey Weinstein has some defenders now, but I think they're they're fewer and uh, fewer and farther between than they are for some others here. Uh, This is a question from Alison Castellina. She writes, how Canada has become so woke is a complete mystery to me. It seems about five to 10 years ahead on extreme wokery. Can you shine some light On this to this non-Canadian. So this goes back to what I said earlier about how I I don't know if Americans tolerate the Canadian content, enjoy it, or tune it out. This is a woman who seems to be utterly mystified by what Canada is and and has become. So I will do my best to explain it, although I can't guarantee I'll I'll do it particularly well. Uh, The one thing that I, I think has to be said here is that I remember when Canada used to be in this weird in-between spot uh, as far as cultural trends go, where we'd look to Europe and say, okay, we're we're five to ten years behind them, but we're five to ten years ahead of the U.S., on the really insane wokery and political trends. So, you know, Canada would hold itself up as being this slightly more sensible version of Europe. So kind of this hybrid, I mean, as is the Canadian cultural tradition, this hybrid of the United Kingdom and and the United States. Now, I'm not daring to accuse the UK of being in Europe, but I'm just saying, of you know, transatlantic influence and American influence both exist in Canada. And now I I know Canadians and to be honest, I count myself among them that would look to European countries and say, you know, maybe I would have a better time living there because, you know, we we, we still have no freedom, but at least there's a bit of a nicer culture and better food. That's kind of how defeatist I am about this. And that, you know, if we're going to abandon our civil liberties, might as well do it in a way that, you know, you can walk down the Danube as you do it. And and certain European countries are, of course, better than, than others when it comes to this, like Hungary and, and Poland. But all of that is to say that, that Canada, I think, has one big dynamic, which is one of the most universal dynamics of the Canadian existence, which is that It defines itself relationally. It does not define itself based on an immovable core set of criteria and national values in the way that the United States does, or at least did until recently. Canada defines itself largely relationally to the United States. We consider ourselves nicer than Americans. We consider ourselves more polite than Americans. We uh, say that, oh, our healthcare is better than Americans. We say, oh, but we don't have guns like the Americans. I mean, even things that are presented as being standalone values, if you scratch beneath the surface just a little bit, you'll find are really just relational, and they're Canadians trying to differentiate themselves from the United States. And it's one of the most insufferable qualities, certainly of the Canadian left, this inability to define Canada in terms that are unique, and this inability to celebrate Canada in terms that are unique. And, and you know, Canadians will, as a result, because they don't know their history, they'll import American fights as our own. So when the US overturns Roe v. Wade, Canada, which has the most, literally the most liberal abortion laws in the world, uh, our political class is talking about how we aren't going to let anyone take away a woman's right to choose when, like, even our conservative party refuses to campaign on abortion. So they're responding to an American fight. Canada, which has a, a firearm system which generally works, will come out with sweeping gun control in the wake of mass shootings in the United States because we import U.S. cultural battles. It's the only thing Canadians know how to do. So I, I think that the reason we have such, as Allison says, extreme wokery is because anything that Canadian liberals see in the U.S. that they don't like, they overreact to in Canada, even when the battle doesn't exist here. Now, I, I think to to some extent, this is probably the, the defining feature Of Canada, And it's why we have gone so extremely to the left in recent years, because Justin Trudeau is probably more disposed to doing this, more predisposed to doing this than any other Canadian prime minister we've ever had. I mean, he is the prime minister for the online. He's the prime minister for Twitter. He's the prime minister that wants to govern by hashtags. So whenever something happens in the U.S., he wants to just drag us so far to the left on it and it's really just about showing off. I mean, he's a guy that wants to audition to be Secretary General of the UN or Chairman of the World Economic Forum or whatever. That's the landing pad he wants whenever he's no longer Prime Minister. And I think that is ultimately going to be uh, the what he does just every single day for the remainder of his term. Uh, we have one question here from Nicola Timmerman, my fellow Canadian. How could Trudeau have consulted the ethics commissioner about his two-week vacation supposedly paid for by a millionaire pal when we have been six months without a nominated commissioner. Any chance it will name a new person to inquire into Chinese inference? I believe she means interference in our last federal election. Yeah, I mean, the ethics commissioner thing is, I mean, this is like it's inside baseball as it gets in Canada, but they still have a, an operating office that I'm assuming he cleared his Tofino vacation with. Uh, this is the guy who a couple of weeks ago announced his separation from his wife. So Justin Trudeau and his uh, wife of, I think, 18 years announced their separation and said, oh, and we demand our privacy. And then like three days later, he's taking a photo uh, with his son wearing their pink shirts outside the Barbie movie. And then two days later, he's taking a photo with his teen daughter because they're out going to a movie. And I'm like, you know, if this guy were to spend all this time going to movies instead of running the country, he'd actually, the country would be in a better place. But then he did this weird thing where he's like, after announcing the separation, He's like, and we're going to go all together as a big happy family to Tofino, British Columbia next week. So he's in the surfing country of Tofino uh, right now, which is in British Columbia. And it's a a beautiful, beautiful spot uh, on some family vacation. Now, uh, someone actually emailed me uh, yesterday who lives in the area and said that they had heard kind of through the rumor mill in Tofino that Trudeau had bought some, multi-million dollar uh, beachfront property there. And he sent me the address and I, I looked into it and I uh, didn't see any property record uh, suggesting that Trudeau owned it. I think it's just owned by some millionaire that Trudeau probably knows and he rents it out whenever he goes there. But uh, he does seem to enjoy going there an awful lot. So I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm not on this team, Nicola, of trying to prevent him from vacation. I think if he would actually vacation all four years of his term, uh, the country would be in a better place. And as for the Chinese interference thing uh, he's supposedly the government's been having trouble finding someone they they can't find anyone that wants to uh, dig into China's interference in Canada's elections, which strikes me as a little bit suspect, but uh, if he does find one, I'm sure it'll be a complete whitewash like the first one he tried uh, with David uh, David Johnston there, the former Governor General of Canada. That is about as, uh, that's about as Canadian content as I think we can get on this particular show. Toby Pilling writes, Napoleon's story is about to come to our cinemas, courtesy of Ridley Scott. Do your Quebecois countrymen view him as a hero like the French, or is there's a more nuanced view? <laughs> I, I, by the way, I kind of object to you calling the Quebecois my countrymen. I think they would object actually because they don't really view themselves a, as a Canadian countrymen by any stretch. But uh, all that aside, I, that's actually an interesting question, and I don't know the answer to it. Now, I, I'm interested in seeing Ridley Scott's treatment of. Napoleon's story, and I, I'm actually quite interested in in learning a little bit more about which perspective he's taking on Napoleon. The the Quebec thing, though, is a bit of an odd part of it here because Quebec had been so distinct and discreet uh, for, from France by the time of Napoleon's reign, and it was kind of interesting because there were whole generations of Quebecois that had the French language in the late 1700s and, and uh, into the 1800s, but had no connection to France whatsoever. I mean, you had to go back generations to find French settlers that had come from France. And of course, France had gone through its own uh, tumult and uh, had changed leadership. So it was a different place. And uh, the people in Canada had no connection to France, I mean, this is why they didn't call it New France anymore. And, and by the time you get to Napoleon's reign, uh, we're we're in this period in which Quebec really has nothing to do with France except for the shared language. And and interestingly, you then fast forward. It's not until the 1960s where you start to see this construction of a, of a France. Quebec relationship, and you had, uh, you know, Chagall doing all of this uh, or not Chagall, de Gaulle <laughs> Chagall didn't uh, Chagall did not to, to my knowledge come to Quebec and, and campaign for this but you had uh, you had de Gaulle that that really drove this and and this was around the time that Quebec started to really define itself more by language than by religion because it used to be the Catholic province and then uh, around the time of the quiet revolution in, in Canada in the seventh in the 20th century it became the French province and and since then it's really become a linguistic nationalism more than than anything else so my theory would be without having looked into this that that Quebecers would not really have a strong relationship with Napoleon uh, unless it's one that they've kind of concocted after the fact in the same way that this vision of Quebec of modern Quebec being a part of this French language empire has kind of come about I mean remember France gave up Quebec to the British in exchange for Guadeloupe because, you know, France said, why do we want what Voltaire called just a patch of snow when we could have molasses and all of this other stuff in in Guadeloupe? So that was basically how valuable Quebec was to the uh, French by the time uh, that Napoleon was around and and quite a bit before it. So, uh, this is a question from Fran here. Hi, Andrew. It's been driving me to utter distraction that the House of Representatives, House of sorry, that the House Republicans under the leadership of Speaker Kevin McCarthy, leadership is in quotation marks there, are just standing by and watching the Marxists in Georgia go after President Trump with fangs out and hints of red dripping from their bloodthirsty lips. Why does anyone representing those wanting the rule of law uh, to be even-handed show their courage or when does anyone, rather than their thirst quenching for more donations. I get 100 emails a day from Republican politicians looking for money so they can do their job. Having the true American freedom lovers taken enough heavy-duty crapola... Do we have any recourse to save our country? This goes for yours as well. Uh, And then she continues, uh, when do you head to Davos next? If you get to walk and talk with one of the headhunters over there, can you please ask if the main reason why they never talk to you is due to dining on too many crickets? Uh, this well I I, let me get to this let me start with this one here because when I am going to Davos in January for the the World Economic Forum annual meeting again I don't know if I'll have credentials I don't know if they will uh, give me a media pass like they did last year although it didn't really matter too much because I learned that when you have a media pass it doesn't actually let you get into any of the areas that all of uh, the good folks are hanging around in or if you are there you're not allowed to record or anything so uh, you basically get just as much access way by the entrance uh, and just ambushing people on on their way in and out as you do actually walking around inside somewhat better I'd say and I don't know it's funny though so when I was there last Jose Andres who's a a very well-known chef and he's you know a big lefty but decent enough guy good uh, very good chef uh, he was there And he was walking by and I just, you know, didn't really have any good questions for him. So I just grabbed him and I just said, hey chef, do you have any good uh, cricket recipes you could recommend? And he did not understand what was happening his handler very much understood what was happening and like desperately tried to intervene. And then Jose Andres is thinking like, oh, wow, this guy's interested in alternative cuisine. So he starts telling me about these like Mexican cricket tacos that you can get uh, before his handler can pull him away from it of getting like cricket recipes at Davos. So that was my fun little uh, cricket story from there. Uh, But I don't know, It's, it's interesting. I mean, some people did speak. Like they're not used to having anyone there that's not drinking the Kool-Aid. So it's starting to get a little bit more, they're starting to get a bit more guarded. Like I think when Albert Borla uh, the Pfizer CEO was harangued for like 20 minutes by Ezra Levant of Rebel last time around. I think he's going to think twice about walking around without uh, bodyguard or handlers there to to body check Ezra out of the way. So uh, stay tuned. I'm sure you'll find footage of Ezra being body checked by a Pfizer exec in Davos in just a, a couple of months time here. Uh, but the first part of your question, Fran, I mean, I, I'm convinced now that political fundraising or donating to political parties is not the way you get any change in, in anything. I think a lot of people have just kind of unquestioningly set these donations up and never really reevaluated them and have never asked the question, what are you giving me for this? And, you know, if I can put in a plug that I, I hope doesn't sound indulgent here, uh, when people are are giving, let's say you want to, you know, give 100 bucks to something or whatever, $160, $150, it's like... What is going to make more of an effect on the things you care about? Is it going to be giving it to the Republican Party or the Conservative Party of Canada or the UK Tories? Or is it going to be to give that money to, I would say, selfishly, an independent media outlet? Get a Mark Stein Club membership, subscribe to, you know, a podcast you like. Because those are people that are actually moving the needle. And, you know, I've actually been just in my own... Uh, life and, and my own work outside of with Stein online I've been very pleased when I I, you know I'll be out and a member of parliament will come up to me and so Andrew I love your show and in some cases with these MPs I'm like well clearly you don't listen to it enough because you wouldn't be doing you know x y and z but I, I think a lot of uh, independent media we know the good politicians are paying attention to and I think you need to actually lay the intellectual foundations Uh, that create the conditions for the bad politicians to do the right thing. And this was uh, a line I'm lifting, uh, not verbatim, but lifting almost verbatim out of the most recent Mark Stein show, which I I hope you'll watch about globalism, which is that you don't uh, spend your time and energy electing the right people or waiting for the right people. You create the conditions where even the wrong people have to do the right thing. And I've actually, that, that stuck with me a fair bit, that comment that Mark made on the Rise of the Globalists show with uh, Ava Vlardingerbrook and Michelle Bachman and John O'Sullivan. And I hope it will stick with you as well. And I, I think, yeah, donating your 100 bucks to, you know, whoever's trying to win the, you know, Iowa third. or I don't even know if Iowa has three districts. I believe they do. Uh, I'm a Canadian. We, we give our ridings names and not numbers. So I could tell you all about what's happening in a bit to be to Miskaming, but not like, you know, Quebec 3 or something. Uh, but that would be my little parting thought there is that your money can do a lot more for you don't going anywhere other than to a political campaign. Uh, Melanie Cook writes, keep taking good care of yourself, Mark, and kudos to your marvelous supporting cast. I don't know if I'm supporting cast or if I'm an understudy (laughs) or if understudies are part of the supporting cast, but either way, I know Mark appreciates your well wishes, Melanie and those of the rest of you as well. So that's it for me. My thanks to all of you for tuning into this Clubland Q&A. We will see you next time.